I invite you, if you haven't already, you can go ahead and make your way to your seats. You're also welcome to stand as we begin together in song. And I will turn to you when the night is falling, and when my sin is calling, and when I can't see straight and the smoke's in my eyes. And I will wait for you when the future's blurry. Amidst the rush and hurry When the pain is real and the questions arise Sing this There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain No end to your sky There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean No top to your mountain No end to your sky there's no limit to your love we'll Sing that one more time There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean No top to your mountain No end to your sky There's no limit to your love no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain No end to your sky There's no limit to your love Alright, you can grab a seat. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you. Thanks for being here. Excited to be here together to, um, to gather in this place as, um, as the church. Not to come to church, but to come into this place as the church. Um, as we say each and every time we get together, as a reminder that life in Jesus isn't just about this, but, but this that we do here the next few moments. This is what we're about to enter into the next few moments. Helps set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus so that we might recognize him and notice him throughout the week, so that we might follow him uh, in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our communities to very much uh, be participants in all that God is doing in the wondrous and tremendous ways within our own lives and in the lives of others. And so that's what we long for. That's what we hope for, for this time. And so just as a reminder, as we, as we kind of enter into this time, um, that we're asking the Lord to do something for us, that we're asking Jesus to be present with us in a way that we can know him, in a way that we can recognize him, uh, in a way that allows us again to follow him together outside of this place. We pray that for ourselves, we pray that for our kids, we pray that as a faith family uh, in many ways so that like this will be normal for us. That is as different as this is, stepping out of our ordinary rhythms and roles during the week to come into a place where we can be aware of God's presence. We want that to actually be a normal part of our life, that when the ups and downs of life are happening in the days, uh, in Monday and Wednesday and Friday and the days in between that, that we can recognize God with us. And so that's our hope and our prayer today. So as we kind of get into that, before, um, before we, we ask Lexi to come up in just a second to read a psalm to help us ground us in the Word of God and in the presence of God, will you do this for me? Like even with our kids here, like let's just for a moment just quiet ourselves. Let our minds be quiet, our hearts be quiet. Let's close our eyes and take a deep breath. And then pray with me and ask the Spirit to do what the Spirit does 
for us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear God with us. We pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are here, that where your family gets together, Father Lord, you are uh, present. Father, I know we come into this place, Lord, um, <laughs> with mixed emotions. Lord, some of us have experienced hard weeks. Some have experienced weeks of opportunity. Some, um, Lord, have weeks that are mixed. Father, we come into your presence with so much that's, um, that feels so weighty, so much that feels so other. So in your grace and by your spirit, will you just clear away our minds and hearts in a way that allows us to be truly present to you and you present to us? Give us ears to hear, Lord, that we may worship you with gladness and joy, that we may, Lord, uh, find ourselves in joyful submission to your way and your word that is Jesus, and that together, Father, Lord, we might find ourselves um, encouraging each other to walk fully and faithfully, whole and holy in the life that you have given us in Jesus. All this we pray, uh, Lord, with humble hearts, um, with hungry hearts um, for more of you. In your son's name, amen. Lexi, will you come up and read for us from Psalm 37? Fret not over braggarts, or wish you could succeed like wicked. In no time they'll shrivel, shrivel like grass clippings, and wilt like cut flowers in the sun. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and be friend faithfulness and find safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, keep, keep company with God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way, your life's journey to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, doing whatever needs to be done. He'll validate your life in the clear light of day and stamp you with approval at high noon. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Thank you, Lexi. I want to invite you to stand and uh, we'll continue in song, um, just singing the truth of what Lexi read for us. To commit our way to the Lord, to trust him, he is indeed worthy. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever we live for you Jesus the name above every other name Jesus the only one who could ever say worthy of every breath we could ever we live for you, we live for you, 
Open up my eyes and wonder Show me who you are And fill me with your heart And lead me in your love to those Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Oh, we live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, and live for you.
at you Open up my eyes and wonder Show you who you are and fill me with your heart So if you have little ones, you're welcome to go ahead and uh, start taking them back to their assigned rooms. The rest of us, I invite you, as we just sang, we'll continue in song together. But as Jeremy um, reminded us last week, there's this rhythm of life that we have together. Look at God, look at one another, and then return our eyes to Jesus.
His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. And go to a world that is dying. It's perfect salvation to tell. in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace turn your eyes upon Jesus full in his wonderful Things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and rain. So you're welcome to be seated, and I'll turn your attention to the screen down front, and Rory is going to lead us in a reading. What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Thanks, Rory. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 9. We'll get there in just a minute. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've, uh, we've tried to paint a picture of church in its simplest form, right? Um, whatever it might be in um, an idea or experience, ambition, or, uh, or even regret, um, in its most biblical, what I think is most biblical form, its most simplest form, Church, a family of God, is spiritual companions. It's, it's pilgrims and apprentices, a family of faith, those who are listening and responding to the Father, who are following Jesus as the way home on earth as it is in heaven. I know, like, we are apprentices and pilgrims. We're ones who are learning skills in faith. We are ones who are on a journey somewhere with Jesus, right? Like following Jesus isn't just this stagnant thing that we're in. Life isn't just this get the things done today and get to the next day tomorrow. But is this path, this journey that we're on. And the journey's taking us to a place, and that place is home. A place of home on earth as it is in heaven. A, a, a place that um, Thomas Burton beautifully describes as an ultimate end in which our whole nature and capacities are fulfilled as we are brought into contact with the one we seek, united to God in union of wills. But here's the thing about this journey. Even this journey to such a beautiful and wonderful place as home on earth as it is in heaven, um, it's not a stroll in the park to get there, right? We know that. We intuitively know that just of going through life. The life is not always easy. It's a hike that takes us to the heights of kingdom peaks, yes, but also weaves us through the valleys of the shadow of death. 
along the trek through this tribulation and kingdom is we actually become who we are meant to be. We become who we really are, who we truly are in relationship with the one from which all life flows, responding to him who formed us, who knows us, who desires us to live abundantly into his image for us as we abide in his love and in his word and in obedience by loving one another. But the only way we get there through tribulation and kingdom, through the treks of kingdom highs and and valleys of death, is by going the way that Jesus got there. And the way Jesus got there is through learning obedience through what he suffered. Taking up our cross and following him is what Jesus would invite us to do in Luke chapter 9. Daily experiencing little deaths and daily experiencing resurrections with our siblings and partners that are on the same path. In its most simplest essence, in its most simplest form, that's church. That's what life together in Jesus is. Men and women, spiritual companions, following with us as family, listening and responding to the Father on our way home to earth as it is on heaven. We don't always like that though, right? If we're honest. (laughs) We, We either, we don't like the narrowness of the road. I mean, who, after all, wants to lose their life even if to gain a new and better one? I mean... Let's be honest, right? Like we say yes and amen to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Yes and amen to give up our lives so that we can have more. But when it comes down to it, do we really enjoy it? Do we really take pleasure in it? Do we really want it? Nor are we always fond of the biblically never idolized or bemoaned fact that the journey necessarily involves companions. (laughs) Some whom we might not have chosen if we'd been the ones selecting the expedition's crew, right? Sometimes it would just be easier to go at it alone or just go at it with a group that we like or people that we like. The, the actually being with others and sometimes makes life a little bit difficult. And so it seems like the way of Jesus isn't always the smoothest path. Following Jesus on the way home to earth as it is in heaven, to life whole and holy, full and forever, doesn't always take us down the route we expect. Um, doesn't take us down a smooth course. Which is why we need the encouragement to ask Jesus the question Thomas asked him. How do we know the way? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? That, that along the way we find ourselves in this spiritual journey together, um, sometimes confused. Sometimes in a difficult spot with the way Jesus is going and where he's taking us. And so we need to confess to Jesus in the company of our fellow travelers that we're not exactly sure that where he's going and the way he's going lines up with how we would like it. And here's the thing, when we confess this to Jesus, when we ask these things to Jesus in the, in the community of others, Jesus responds. That's pretty incredible, right? And he does so in a manner that draws us into his vision for our lives and draws us out of us the faith we need to believe or to trust even when we don't see so clearly, even when we're having trouble believing that his way is the way. But we're meant to see more clearly. Like as as good as an encouraging it is to hear from Jesus that, that you have the faith to keep walking even when things don't fully line up into the vision that you want for your life and following him, the way you expected life with him to look like, his desire isn't for us to just stumble around in the dark. His desire is us for is us to see more clearly to see more clearly of where Jesus is going and how we're getting there. Jesus said as much in his famous final conversation before the cross, right? That same chat in which Thomas humbly and boldly questioned Jesus. Jesus said that that we are no longer servants. He doesn't call us servants anymore, but he calls us friends. And why does he call us friends? What is the difference between a servant and a friend? 
A, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, what his master's up to, how his master's working, what his master's plans and purposes are. But a friend has been let in on all that the father is doing. Then they're, they're inside on what is actually happening in their life and in the world around them, in line with what God is doing in their life and the world around them. They, we're friends because we're no longer ignorant of the way the world really is. Jesus tells us and shows us through his life and, and soon to be death and resurrection here in John 15 that the what, where, and how of life with God, the only life there is, what, where, and how of life with God, the only life there is. So we, we best get in on it, right? I mean, that's what we've been talking about. That's what Paul encourages to in Colossians, to get in on the ways that are after this resurrected life, ways that allow us to live this new and whole and holy life as we're seeking to respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him. What we desire in life with the Father ultimately, right? To be whole and holy, to be, our, our, to be in a place where our whole nature and capacities are fulfilled. So let's get after it. Let's get after it with Jesus. He wants that for us. He wants to show us that. The problem is we don't always know what we want, right? It sounds great to be after Jesus, to want what Jesus wants for us, to want this union that leads to the fullness of life for us. But, but we don't always know what we want, and even when we do, our desires seem mixed and muddled and almost always just immediate. And immediate is not a derogatory thing. We all have things that we need met in the moment. So we ask Jesus the question Thomas asked, but then we let Jesus ask us a question too. It's only fair, right? That's a relationship. That's how it works. We ask Jesus a question, Jesus asks us. He asks us, what do you want? What do you want from me? One of his most favorite questions in the New Testament. He asks us in a way not to dismiss us or condemn us, no matter how naive or self-absorbed or obvious our initial responses might seem. We saw that last week in Matthew 20. But he asks us rather to draw us into the depths of our desires, to the God-fashioned, Jesus-freed place, Jesus where we are who we are truly meant to be. That's what Jesus does. He asks us in a way to draw us into the place, the God-designed, Jesus-freed place where we are who we really truly are, a place where God is working, his energy deep within us, as Roy read for us from Philippians, and willing for his good pleasure to come forth in our lives. What is God's good pleasure for us? Well, it's all things, whether on earth or in heaven, reconciled to Him, in right relationship to Him, made back into a place with Him that's good as He created for us, through Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now, we may have heard those words over, over and over again a few times, and so let me read it in another way. Another translation puts it this way. It says, we look at the Son, Jesus, and see the God we cannot see. We look at Jesus and we see God that we cannot see. If we want to see God, we see Jesus. That's what, that's what Thomas's issue was, right? That's what he questioned. And Jesus' response to him was, if you, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We look at the Son and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the Son and we see God's original purpose in everything created. We look at Jesus and we see the world as it should be, as it's meant to be, whole and also individual. Everything got started in Jesus and finds its purpose in him. He holds it all together right up to this moment, to this moment, here, today. And when it comes to the church, those spiritual companions and family of faith, he organizes and holds it together too, like a head does a body. 
Remember, he was supreme in the beginning. And leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's here, towering far above everything and everyone, as the revelation revealed to us, right? So spacious is he, so roomy is Jesus, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of Jesus' death, Jesus' blood, that poured down from the cross. Colossians 1 outlines for us what the writer of Hebrew calls the elementary doctrine of Christ. The basic foundational truths put in place by God himself on which our entire lives are lived, right? Our eating and sleeping, our working and worship, our marrying and divorcing, our playing and praying, our blessings and our losses, our calling and our cancer, our faithfulness and our faith, everything experienced in the context of good creation started in Jesus, supreme in the beginning, and in an intended salvation, the resurrection parade, supreme in the end is Jesus. Everything, everything of God finds its proper place in relation to Jesus, in the sight of Jesus, when we look to Jesus. We probably think we should stop here, right? Like we, we, should, we should, could just wrap it up. This is a yes and amen. This is what we believe. This is the foundation to which we are built. Where do we go, if not but the foundation? And listen, we should stop often here and worship in awe of the Lamb that was slain, alive and on the throne, towering far above everything and everyone. But worship is dynamic, not static. Worship is dynamic, not static. It's a lived response to all Christ is and is doing. It's a lived response to all that Christ is, these foundational elements, these basic elements, elementary doctrines, are meant to make life come forth, not simply just be this thing that exists and that we're in awe of. This is why John, the beloved disciple, said of these foundational truths, that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? It's only the beginning that Jesus rules and reigns and makes life new for us. That he puts everything whole as it should be. Takes everything that's broken and makes it right. Allows everything and everyone to find its place in him. Uniquely as they've been made. Within his good graces and his good order. All that is true of Jesus, but it's meant to grow something up out of us and in us. The author of Hebrews agrees. He actually urges this. He says in Hebrews 6 verse 1, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Why? Because the foundation's already been laid. You're already standing on it. You're already planted in the midst of it. Jesus has done these things. Jesus is these things. Jesus is all that we need, as we just sang. Jesus Christ is, as the Apostle Paul said, the only foundation on which we can be built to full maturity, into the temple to God's dwelling, the place where we are whole and holy. And listen, we know this, right? I mean, we affirm it, we sing it all the time, we repeat it all the time. But while there are times when we forget, and at times certainly we need to be reminded of it, the truth is that we're not apt at building our lives on this foundation, at least not skilled at it like master builders. Right? Right? The author of Hebrews points out this all-too-common problem on our journey home with Jesus and others, and he says this. About this we have much to say. About what? About the reality of what Jesus has done, 
who Jesus brings us into being with God in relation to God and the life that comes out of it. He has a lot to say about it, but it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Why does it seem difficult to explain this life with God and what it's meant to be? Because you've become dull of hearing. You don't listen to see anymore. The, you, you don't listen to see God. You don't look at the sun to see God. You don't look at the sun to see what God is up to and what God is doing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles or sayings or scriptures of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. Listen to that. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unskilled in relating rightly to God by hearing God's word and doing it unskilled in being the family member that you are made to be because of Jesus, that you are invited to be because of Jesus. Since he is a child, the better rendering is an infant. Not only are you unskilled, you're infantile, right? But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers, that is, faculties of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. To become like Jesus and seeing clearly what the Father is up to. The outcome of a union of wills where what pleases God is the desire of our hearts he satisfies. To come back to what it looked like to dwell with God in the garden before we decided we could determine what was good and evil ourselves. Without relationship to him. This is what we're meant to be skilled at. To learn the skills in doing. That, that if all we do is keep coming back to the basic foundational truths and keep saying them and praising them and worshiping God for, with them, we don't ever get to go on beyond that. And according to the author of Hebrews, that's not good. There's more. That's only the beginning. God wants more for us. He doesn't want us to remain infants. He wants us to mature. Remember what Jesus that Jesus says that he leads us to the Father's house, to the presence of the one in whom we find our whole nature and capacities are fulfilled. The Apostle Paul describes what happens in this place with Jesus that Jesus leads to. When we look at the Son and see God and God's original purpose in everything, what it happens, it's like, it's like a veil being removed. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, But when one turns to the Lord, when one turns to Jesus, the veil is removed. The veil which hides what God is up to in our lives and the lives of those we are following Jesus with in the world we inhabit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When this veil is unmoved, freedom is what we get to experience, right? When we get to see, we get to see freedom. And freedom in relational proximity. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is this relational reality that we live in. It's not a disconnected, isolated, autonomous thing. Freedom is in relationship to God. In the life that Jesus came to invite us into, right? A life forever where our whole nature and capacities are fulfilled when we face God face to face, when we see God face to face. And we all with unveiled face, face to face with God, beholding the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Lord, this beautiful life that we talked about last week of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. One translation says this verse this way. It says, Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. For this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
For this is what the Lord does with us from the will of God, the desire of God to be near us, is for us to become more and more like Jesus in his nearness. To be free like Jesus is free. To be whole like Jesus is whole. So when we see Jesus, we can recognize God and his purposes in our daily living and in the lives of one another. Over time, we begin to see more and more clearly, discerning both what God is up to and who we are, what part we play and what our life in its fullness truly is in his unfolding drama of salvation for ourselves and for others, his gracious operations a persistent will at work to finish what he started. Discernment, this thing that we're meant to grow in the ability to do, to, um, to encourage the maturing of the faculty of, according to Ruth Haley Barton, is an increasing capacity to recognize and respond to the presence of Jesus in ordinary moments and also the larger decisions of our lives. Discernment is an increasing capacity to recognize and respond to the presence of Jesus in ordinary moments and in big moments, in little things and major things. As the author of Hebrews again noted, discernment is a skill it's a skill that can be developed, a skill that can be learned, a skill that actually is, requires effort. Like, if it, like, maybe not everybody's a sport person, but I know there are some sport people here or people who have maybe, um, um, or maybe even crafts, crafts persons. You know that doing your sport um, or doing your craft requires some natural skill and ability, right? Just to be able to do it generally requires some innate ability to be able to jump in. That's why not everybody can play everything or do everything, whether it's musicians or craftsmakers or sports people. Even, a, even an athlete can't necessarily play every sport, right? There's some things that just are more intuitive and natural for that person. But you also know that to, to be any good at that thing which you love, that thing which you're made to do, right, requires you to work at the skill. It requires you to develop the, the ability that's innate within you to maturity, to let it become fully all that it is and meant to be. And that's what discernment is. It's both a faculty, a thing given to us, but also a skill that we get to develop. A skill of noticing Jesus, which is developed by practice, constant practice. A skill in faith that helps us see clearly the path, no matter how high we are on the kingdom peaks or low we are in the valleys of the shadows of death, no matter how treacherous the path may seem or how smooth it may seem in the moment. We're not confined how we're not confined by the tightness of the path that we feel in right now or whether we're walking in open terrain in the moment wherever we find ourselves along the journey discernment helps us see clearly where to go what to do because it sees clearly what God is doing where God is at and as always we need spiritual companions to help us hone this skill to hone the skill of building one another up by maturing our faculties through practice and we see this most clearly in John chapter 9, I think. So a little bit of background. The story that we're going to get into in just a moment in John chapter 9 takes place after one of those aha moments with Jesus. When we see Jesus um, in a way that just kind of opens our eyes, that we see him pretty clearly. And we see what he's doing pretty clearly. And we see that through him, we actually see what the Father's doing, right? Have you ever experienced one of those moments where it just seems like everything in the world clicks? Like in the presence of Jesus, you just saw whatever God had for you, for someone else, what God was doing in the world, just with clarity, right? 
Like you just, you recognized it. You saw it. There was, it was just an aha moment. It was a tremendous moment. When you, and like, and this is what it says in John 8, right? It said, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Like Jesus says that. Jesus shows up. He shows this bright light. Many believed. And then he says this, I have much to say about you and much to judge. I have much to make clear about you, to, to show you about yourselves. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. Jesus saying in this text that, that, that to these people that, like, listen, I have all kinds of things to show you, good and bad, Right? I have all, I'm the light of the world. I shine the light on the paths that lead to harm. A couple of verses before this, Jesus talks about, if you don't believe in me, you'll end up in death because that's where sin leads. So I'm trying to lead you out of that and into life. So I have lots to show you about yourself, about where the past leads, harmful paths, paths of loss, paths of death, but as well as a way to the Father and what the Father takes pleasure in, what the Father is after, because I've heard from him. He says in verse 31 and 32, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, to those who had listened and had this aha moment of Jesus, this, they see Jesus and they recognize what the Father's up to in Jesus. They believed it. And he says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You're truly ones who follow me. And you will know the truth. You'll see clearly. You'll know what's going on, what the Father's up to. And that truth will set you free of what God is up to, what God is doing. It will set you free. It will allow you to be free, the same kind of freedom we just read about in, in the previous text, right? That you'll get to be fully who you're, all, you're meant to be in relation to others and God in the midst of God's working out of his salvation, right? You'll get to be that. But as soon as Jesus says this, something happens. And maybe this happened to you too. It's, you saw all these things, you revealed all these things, your discernment, you just felt like, man, you discerned God's presence and the, 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 what God has for you and for others. But then there's something inside you that just starts to make you question. Something inside you that's like, ah, did I really see that? Is, that? is that really what God wants? Is that really the way? Is that really the path? Is that really what God's after? What comes after this in the next few verses for the rest of chapter 8 is people questioning who Jesus was and what Jesus has done. They challenge comes internally and externally. Like you and me, the disciples were challenged by their own and others' ignorance. They, they, they were challenged by what they think they know about themselves but don't really know. Um, if, a few verses later, they'll ask Jesus, well, do we, what do we really need to be free from? Well, why do we need to be free from anything? Aren't we already free? They'll also be challenged by pride, what we think we need but don't need or what we don't think we need. And so they'll be like, well, again, we're, we're Abraham's children. We don't need that. We're free. And they'll also be challenged by the enemy who's still trying after all these years, after Genesis 3, to make God out to be against us and not for us, to make us to be the ones who determine what is good and evil, not in relation to God know what's good and evil. And so by the end of this, we see the same ones who believe Jesus questioning everything about Jesus. They said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality like the stories about your birth. They start to, they start to attack Jesus because they attack the things they saw. Like, no, this can't be it. This is not the way. This is, your way is improper because you're improper. God wouldn't show this to me. He wouldn't have this for me because that's not the proper way. They go even further. Not only is it, are, you, are you from an improper source, you're a Samaritan and have a demon. Not only is it improper, it's completely outside the box. There's no way that this is the way of God. There's no way if, as we see these things happening in our lives, as God reveals these things to us, as he shows us what he might be up to in our lives and the lives of those around us, that this could be the way that God works. 
And then finally they have this question, what the enemy questioned at the very beginning. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Goes back to control. Who do you think you are to tell me what it is that my life's supposed to look like and to be? Have you ever been there? In a place where you thought you could see Jesus, discern what God was up to, only to find yourself pushing back on what you discerned, questioning if you had seen clearly, heard accurately, or were following the right spirit? I mean, if you're like me, yes, you've been there, right? Like you've had those moments. I wonder how, how, did, how did you feel afterwards? How did you feel specifically about your faith and your ability to perceive and see what God was doing, to recognize Jesus with you? Did you feel infantile? Did you feel unsure? I know I have. And that's how I imagine the disciples felt after Jesus' interaction in John chapter 8. Especially after the final skirmish that escalates when Jesus lets a large part of the crowd around them know that the reason that they're hard of hearing is because they're actually listening to the wrong voice, to the devil's voice. And of course, like us, we don't like that. We wouldn't like that, right? We wouldn't like to be told that. And so they do this, and I quote from John 8, 59. They picked up stones to throw at Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They're not just angry at Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And so Jesus sneaks off, and he walks out of the temple. And that's where our story picks up. On Jesus' way out, chapter 9, verse 1. On Jesus' way out, he passed by, and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him a question. So here in, in, in John 9, 1, like we made you think, okay, it's just skipping to another story. We're just moving on to the next thing. That's a lot of how Scripture works. But this is a continuation of what's just come before. Jesus' apprentices are a bit apprehensive about their ability to distinguish good and evil, even in the ordinary situations, right? To their credit, they're at least not afraid to ask, and we'll see that in a second. Here they are walking out of the temple and passing by a known blind man. This is not an uncommon or random um, um, occurrence. This isn't somebody they just ran into. While this might sound strange to us, a blind man at the temple, whether begging for money or looking for healing, this would have been a common scene, right? So common that they would have expected to run into this man and probably to run into this man at least a few times. And maybe he was like the, the blind man from last week that we talked about who was asking for healing over and over again. But at this point, Jesus had never stopped to talk with him. But he's, he's known. And, he, and he's known um, um, for, for a couple reasons. Um, he's known in part because his family brings him there. Because unlike today, begging um, at the temple was an acceptable trade for the handicapped. It was a way to contribute to the family. And so his family loved him. They wanted him to be a part of the family in some sort of way, so they daily transported him to the temple to beg so that he can contribute to the family's good like everybody else. And we know this because the disciples know him, or at least they'll know a little bit about him. Let's read the rest of verse 2. Verse 2 says, they, And the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind or he was born blind? How do they know he was born blind? He's just a random beggar. A random blind man that was just sitting there, how would they know he was born blind? They'd never talked to him, never had any interaction with him, never been a part of, never met his parents in any sort of way. How would they know that this is that he was born blind? I mean, the only answer is that they knew him or at least knew of him in some sort of way, that he was known by the community. 
He was known by them as members of the community. And so this, again, is not an unexpected situation. It's not just a random event and a random occurrence, but rather an ordinary or familiar interaction. But the disciples, like us, are weird and confused, and they feel a bit unsure from their previous seesaw interactions as what to do. The disciples are unable to discern heads or tails from how life in the kingdom works, and thus their place within it. Do they ask Jesus to heal this man? Do they interact into his life? Do they serve him? Do they give to him? So they ask Jesus for help. They ask Jesus for help. Because they they're, they're confused of why this man keeps being allowed to stay there. And in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, not through him, as if he was just uh, some mere illustration, but in him, as one loved by the one who lovingly formed him, fashioned him, and makes him whole. Having discerned that this man's trouble was not the result of sin or evil, in the sense of somebody's direct sin caused this, of course, it's a part of evil in the grander sense of he lives in a broken world. But Jesus distinguishes that he is good, the man is good, and he is meant for good. And we'll see this in just a minute. And here's this, in that Jesus' role and that of his apprentices is to participate in God working to bring about that goodness, the goodness in the man and the man's goodness that he will do in the kingdom of God. We see this in verse 4. Jesus says, and we, we, not me, not I. Jesus says, we, and we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. While we can see clearly the light of life, the light of the world's here. While I'm with you, when I'm with you, you can see. While you can see clearly, you need to do the works of him who sent you. Night is coming when, one can, when no one can work. So Jesus is talking about his death because he's getting to go in that direction, right? But as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as you see me, as long as I'm with you, we get to be a part of what God is doing. Jesus encourages disciples to hold fast to what they saw of Jesus, what they discerned before the ignorance and pride of others, including their own, in tandem with the enemy, made them question. Made them question who and what they saw in Jesus and what God was doing. Jesus is indeed the light of the world, the light of life, who shows us what the Father is up to and how we can respond. And when Jesus does what he desired, what the Father wanted, willed, and purposed, when Jesus, Jesus, what we see Jesus doing is doing what the Father willed and purposed, what Jesus desired. In verse 6 it says, Having said these things, having affirmed and confirmed in the disciples, that listen, look at me and I'll show you, ask me and I'll show you, Walk with me and I'll show you what the Father's up to and how you play a role in that. Have you said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloma, which means scent, which is pretty significant and will come into play in a minute. So he went and washed and came back seen. The man came back seen. He went and washed and came back seen. He didn't see Jesus yet. He's a blind man. Jesus is interacting with him on behalf of the disciples. He's on behalf of what God is doing in this man's life. He heals him. He, goes, he puts mud on his eyes. He goes away. He washes. He comes back seen. And listen, this man saw so clearly that though he was going to be pressed by those who were not listening, those dull of hearing, and thus missing Jesus completely, that's what verses 13 through 29, so we can skip a little bit, verses 13 through 29 are all about those who are hard of hearing and how they just keep pressing this, this man to question what he's seen. Just like the disciples 
repressed in the last chapter, question what he's seen. This can't really be of God, right? Like, you can't be healed. You were healed on a Sabbath. That's not okay. Like, this, this isn't the way God works. This can't be from God. Everything that was questioned in, the, in chapter 8, we have questioned again by this man. And this man's questioned and pushed and pressed every single time. But unlike those in chapter 8 who, who believed and then began to fall into the questioning, to sub- submit to the questioning, to be pulled away from the, by to Jesus from the questioning, this man just kept pressing through. He, he kept pressing in. He kept going all the way through to this point, to a point where he could say this before them in verse 30. The man answered all their questioning. He said, while this is an amazing thing, listen, he's speaking what he discerns. Why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. You don't know what God is doing. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And God obviously listened to Jesus. He obviously listened to this man who healed me. God obviously is present with him. Never since the world began has it been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. How clearly does he see Jesus? How clearly does he see what Jesus is up to in his life? How amazing is that? This man, this blind man, sees so clearly when all those around him couldn't. Like Jesus in the previous chapter, this man's discernment of good and evil did not sit well with those in the temple. Surprise, surprise. So they responded similarly, albeit with a little less vitriol. They don't pick up stones, but they do do something that was very consequential for his daily living. They cast him out of the temple. They cast him out. No longer can he beg. No longer can he provide for his family as, as a handicapped man. No longer can he be a part of the community center of life. He's cast out. That's a pretty big thing, right? To, to be a witness and to be brave enough and have enough courage to witness to what Jesus is saying and that be the consequence. Pretty, pretty amazing. They cast him out. But listen, here's the thing. He, he loses this stuff. Death and resurrection, right? He loses these things. His income, his means of contributing to the good of his family, his community, But he finds something else. Go to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and then Jesus went and found him. How awesome is that? Like Jesus hears he gets cast out, and so he goes and finds the man. Jesus goes after him. Jesus hears about this man who stood up for him, this man who lost everything for him, and he doesn't just leave him out there in the wind, flopping around, hoping that he's got him strong enough to to, to weather it. He goes after him. And Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He, he, again, just like he does with Thomas, he presses into his faith. To what Jesus, Jesus knows the answer. He knows the answer. The man's already stood and witnessed it. Jesus knows what the heart of this man is, the faith that's in this man. The, the no longer blind man answered Jesus and said, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Who is he, sir, that I might see him, that I might trust him, that I might know him fully? There's a birthing of faith in this man. It's there and present, and Jesus knows it. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Then the once blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. Jesus searched this man out. Jesus found this man, and Jesus affirmed and confirmed what this once blind man saw that God indeed was at work in Jesus and through Jesus, that God indeed was the one who was working in his life through Jesus, and that God indeed is the one who's calling this man into life in its fullness because of Jesus. 
He affirmed and confirmed the discernment that that man witnessed to before the leaders, that what he'd witnessed to was true, and that indeed Jesus came for that very purpose, he says in verse 39. For Jesus said, for judgment, again, to reveal the, the past, the different paths, as we go back into chapter 8, right? Uh, there's much I have to show you about yourself and to judge. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. That those who, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Listen, if we want to discern what God is doing and how we join in it at this moment, in our lives, in the lives of our fellow apprentices and pilgrims, because again, look, in, in chapter 9, we have, we have Jesus showing the disciples what role they're playing in this man's life, what role that man plays in their life, revealing God to them in ways that they didn't even know about, right? The depths of God's goodness and grace and working in history that they couldn't perceive. And we see a man who discerns what God is doing in his own life, through his own life, to be one who now is cleansed and sent in to be a witness in a way of Jesus's, in a way that's moving Jesus towards his death and resurrection. I mean, all these play together in this story, which is pretty incredible, right? So if we want to get in on that, if we want to join in what God is doing at this moment in our lives, in the lives of our fellow apprentices, in the life of salvation unfolding around us, collectively and individually, we need to help one another notice Jesus. We need to help one another notice Jesus together. We need to help one another affirm and confirm what we're seeing, discerning with Jesus, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. For this is what God desires when he's with us. Now, I think, um, I'll, I want to clarify this just, just, just because I know when we hear the word discernment, we tend to kind of have, have a certain understanding of discernment. And we tend to usually go in the direction of um, significant decisions around life, right? We, we really want to know what God is up to primarily when it matters most for us, right? Like, and that's, that's, not, that's not wrong. That's, that's normal, right? We're, we're humans. That's normal. When, when big decisions are happening, we want to know what God is up to on job opportunities. We want to know what's, uh, what's up to on calling and desires. We want to know what God is up to in difficult situations, right? When hard things are happening. When we feel it the most, we want to know what God is up to. When we feel the world, the way pressing around us, we feel the darkness, when we feel even the expansiveness of the opportunity, when that weight hits on us, we want to know what God is up to. But here's the thing. While this is certainly an aspect of discernment, the method to train our faculties, this God-given but skill-developed reality of discernment, is to do so in everyday moments in the ordinary lives of others. To do so in our everyday moments and in the ordinary lives of one another. Again, we'll go back to Barton, and she says it this way, in a helpful way, I think. She says, growing in the habit of recognizing the presence of Jesus and what he is up to in our lives, in our community, in the world around us, is the best possible preparation for discerning larger decisions when they come along. So we want to know what God is doing in our, for our career, for marriage, for, for calling, for uh, difficult situations. The way we're able to hone that skill is that we practice by daily, regularly discerning in our lives and the community around us what God is doing. The small things and the little things. Surrounding ourselves, she says, with at least a few folks who are cultivating discernment and staying with them for the long haul so that we have a history of recognizing Jesus together. A history of recognizing Jesus together is the surest foundation for discerning the larger decisions we face. 
In a group of spiritual companions, we develop a habit of noticing Jesus' presence in our lives individually and collectively, pointing out and affirming what he is up to at this moment. And listen, this takes time together and a length of time, right? Like we want to be with people long enough to be able to actually see Jesus at work in their lives, to watch Jesus work in their lives, them to see Jesus at work in our lives, them to watch Jesus work in our lives. To really see him clearly and to notice what keeps us from not seeing so clearly as like those in John 8 and 9, right? We need to be around people enough, committed enough, that we can actually see and experience what Jesus is doing. Listen, Jesus, noticing Jesus together requires a couple things from each of us. And a couple things from us and a couple things for each other. One is a growing friendship with Jesus which hones our attentiveness and can be developed using the following Jesus practices that we've been talking about for the last few years, right? You go to the following Jesus page, you go into the different practices. Those are just ways of developing friendship with Jesus, to be let in on what God is doing in your life and in the life around you, to be one that trains us into attentiveness, right? Like, as, a, as spiritual companions, if we want to be ones who help each other discern and walk together well to the thing that we're trying to get to, this life with God forever experienced on earth as it is in heaven, then we have to be friends with Jesus ourselves. We can't just rely on somebody else's friendship with Jesus. That's not maturity. That's what, that's what an infant does. Like We're meant to have friendship ourselves because we're needed by one another to be able to speak to one another, which is the second part. That, that we need a relational commitment Relational commitment. It doesn't have to mean that we have to see each other all the time, five days a week, 12, seven days a week, have every meal together. There has to be a relational commitment. If you listen to the podcast this past week that, that, um, um, that Christine and um, 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 uh, Chaz put together with Allie, you heard her talk about this group, Allie, Rory, Leslie, Reagan, Catherine, and Allie C. That they've, they've, they didn't know each other before Christ City. They came into the group just knowing that there's something in them that said, hey, you know what, we need, to, we need to kind of be together. We need to be together in a way that helps us know Jesus better and follow Jesus more. And so, even if we don't want to all the time, we're going to make a regular rhythm of being together for that purpose. Sometimes it's, it's a little lax and conversational. Sometimes it's much more intentional. But regardless, we're making a relational commitment to one another to be together so that we can be with Jesus together. It's a willingness and a persistence in being together so that we can take note of what God is up to. That's what I mean in a relational commitment. Again, like it does take time. It takes persistence. But it, it takes this, I'm with you to see Jesus in you, to know Jesus through you. And there's some things that we can do together that help us do that. There's a practice that we can do in those times, in our committed relationships, that we can practice getting to see Jesus. And that's what we're going to do right now. So, like we did last week, we're going to enter into a practice, take a few minutes to quiet ourselves and to practice this so that when we get together in, as families, when we get together as Couples, when we get together as in DNA and gospel community with others who are journeying with Jesus with us, this won't seem so crazy and unfamiliar, right? So like we did last week, let's start by quieting our souls. Take three deep breaths. As you breathe in, pray Holy Spirit. And as you breathe out, 
Open my eyes. You can close your eyes. Take three deep breaths. Holy Spirit, open my eyes. In this quietness, before we can get to seeing Jesus, we have to identify and confess some obstacles to that. So I'm just going to read off some things. Keep your eyes closed. As your mind wanders, breathe in. Holy Spirit, breathe out. Open my eyes. And I want you to think about, as you hear these things, things that are these obstacles that might be keeping you from seeing Jesus this week, in your life, in the lives of others. The first obstacle might be grief, pain, tears, anger. It's something that's been taken, something that you've lost, something that's centered around you, or even that's more societal and global. Is there grief that's clouding your vision? If so, confess that to Jesus. Is there disillusionment with Jesus' way because of past experiences, because of unmet expectations, or even wounds that have you cynical about the way of Jesus and where Jesus is taking you? Is disillusionment an obstacle? If so, confess it to Jesus. Is tunnel vision an obstacle? Are you too focused on the details of your life in a way that makes everything feel personal. So focused on your so self-absorbed that everything feels personal and you can't see a larger perspective. Maybe you're overwhelmed by things. It's not so much a self-absorption, but a being overwhelmed, a tunnel vision. And so you can't see the bigger picture. If that's keeping you from seeing Jesus, confess it. Or maybe it's just simple ignorance. Ignorance of how God works and what he wants for you. You just don't know. You're, you're, you're not sure. And that's keeping you from seeing Jesus in the ordinary things of life. Confess it. Maybe it's societal sight. Human wisdom, cultural ways that are not death, burial, and resurrection rhythm, but are something that says that your life should be an upward only trajectory or that what you really want is all that you want and that's who you really are or whatever it might be. The way the world says life and its goodness comes, you've kind of bought into. If that keeps you from seeing Jesus because he works in ways that are different, confess it. And last, Maybe, again, self-absorption, but self-absorption only in the, that you forget to ask, what is God up to and how can I join with him? Have you asked that this week? Today? Maybe we just forget. So if this self-absorption, this forgetting to ask, keeps you from seeing Jesus, confess it. Now that your, our souls are quieted, our hearts are clear, let's pray this prayer together, opening our minds so that we might see what Jesus has for us. Father, we believe our lives are touched by you, formed by your love and presence, and that you want something for us and of us. So give us ears to hear you, 
eyes to see the tracing of your finger in all of life, and a heart quickened by the motions of your spirit deep within. For we are in Jesus, and Jesus is with us. As our prayer sinks in, I want us to review the week. Quietly, you have paper in front of you. If you want to take notes over um, as we go through this, you, you can. There's paper in the chairs in front of you and pens. Ask God to show you where he has been present with you, even when you are not aware of it this week. So just for a moment, just in the quiet, this is kind of the, the work of the practice. This is the hard work of the practice. Move through the different happenings of your week. When you worked, when you played, when you were at rest, when you were at meals, when you're doing things with your family, when you're doing household chores, when you're hanging out with friends, the times when you're with your GC, maybe phone call conversations you had, maybe TV time, interactions and decisions that were made, just kind of rehearse it, go back through it. And as you do, I want you to take note of a few things. First, take note, notice moments of gratitude, moments when you felt gratitude or you felt love. Or moments where you felt wisdom, protection, guidance, or peace that came from something beyond you. Notice times when you felt Jesus near in some special way. I'll leave this up on the screen if you get confused about what you're supposed to be noticing. You can look on it. I'll just let you have about a minute or two to just kind of reflect on that as you reflect on your week and you notice, notice times when you felt Jesus near in some special way. Hopefully you've at least noticed once or twice Jesus with you this week. In that, noticing, thank God for his presence. Spend about 15 seconds thanking God for his nearness, is with you throughout the week. Now, thinking back through the same week, Notice the moments of emptiness. Take notes of moments when you felt stressed or frustrated, lonely, or you felt drained or anxious. Moments when you felt like you weren't at your best or you were disconnected from God. And now notice these without judging. 
there's, there's no condemnation in these rea this reality. Just notice it. Take note. Where were you? What were you doing? Spend about a minute or so, and then we'll kind of move into the next part. Having noted at least a moment or two this week, and I know we're kind of moving through this at a quick pace, but again, this is just kind of an introduction. Well, in the together practices, we can do this in a smaller group. We won't, we won't be rushed at all. But now that you kind of notice it, we need to kind of process through it. But just as we've talked about where when we notice Jesus with us, we praise God, we give gratitude to God, we worship God. When we notice a disconnection from God, we've got to repent. We, we turn, we let go of what it is that we're holding to so we can grab hold to God with us. And so to do that, we need to kind of understand why we were disconnected. And so if you felt absent, if you felt that God was absent during this week, ask him to show you evidence of his presence. Repent, turn to the reality that God is with you and he never leaves you nor forsakes you. If you felt the absence, just ask him to help you be more aware of his presence. If the source of your feeling comes from a choice you made, if it comes from um, um, choosing to do something that maybe you, you just maybe not a good choice or maybe it felt like it wasn't a good choice or whatever, ask God what it would look like to choose his way next time, to choose a different way next time. If you felt like the disconnection, the stress, the frustration came out of just a choice, not necessarily wrong, not necessarily right, but there's something that maybe you felt like you could have done differently or should have done differently. Just ask God if he would, what it would look like to choose his way next time. If there's an area you know is sinful, sometimes that's hard to distinguish between the last question, but most of the time we know if we're honest enough or you willfully chose something different, willfully did something different, Thing you knew God was telling you to do that was off the mark of the way that God has you interact with himself and with others, confess it. Just confess it and receive God's forgiveness and ask for his help moving forward. Just confess it. Receive God's forgiveness and ask for his help moving forward. I'll give you just a minute to kind of think about those disconnected moments this week and where they kind of fit and let you respond to God in one of those three ways.
in your group setting as you go through this, what will come after this, after this time of um, recognizing Jesus with you, recognizing where Jesus, when you felt like Jesus wasn't with you in some sort of way and processing through it, then you would share. You would share the obstacles that are keeping you from seeing Jesus together. You'd share your observations together. And I encourage you to do so today over lunch with your DNA or with GC or just with friends. Soon, hopefully, um, maybe we'll even be able to do some of that here in this context as we get to turn and talk to one another. Um, But for now, here's how we're going to end our time. Again, at some point you should share this, whatever you've you've, recognized in Jesus and in yourself. I would encourage you to share it. But let's do this. Let's express our gratitude for God's continual presence. Let's end by working, express our gratitude for God's continual presence, working for good and just gentle guidance that is ongoing. It's sufficient for today and for tomorrow. Let's remind us of what is true. Father, we thank you for sending your son to show us you. And in seeing him, Father, Lord, we see you and what you're up to. We thank you for Jesus who calls us friend, who lets us know what is at work in your salvation unfolding, in your good creation intended salvation for our lives and the lives of those around us. So help us to see. Help us to see each day Jesus with us, to notice each day Jesus amongst us, and be ones, as Roy read for us at the beginning, that, that obediently respond to you to, with energy, Father, Lord, work out our salvation daily with fear and trembling, for it's your energy, Father, at work within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. All this we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Welcome to stand and sing with me. Purify our hearts with truth and guide them in your way. Sanctify our lives and have mercy, Lord, we pray That we may do what's pleasing in your sight And know the fullness of your sacrifice We break this bread We drink this wine Remembering the cross The beauty of Your love divine Is washing over us That we may do what's pleasing in your sight and know the fullness of your sacrifice lord we come to you we're amazed by you and all you've done 
all you've done for us. You have set us free. Oh, the mystery of all you've done. All you've done for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. your communion elements there in the chairs there in front of you if you're at home whatever you got let's um, confess together what is true Father you have taught us to abide in your word your word and your love in joyous obedience to keep company with you by loving you our neighbor and one another Grant us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you and with our whole heart, mind, and soul and body and united to one another with pure and gentle affection until we have all become like Jesus inside and out. Be present, O Jesus, our great high priest who died for our sins and is alive for our living. Be present with us as you were with your disciples, and be known to us as we follow you with one another, until our real lives in Jesus become the only life seen. Your glory and our neighbor's good through Jesus. Amen.
We'll let scripture lead us out as we've been um, reading from uh, this past month. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, just before um, the section that we read earlier this morning. This will serve as our prayer and our blessing and our hope um, as we walk into the coming week to be God's people in Dallas, Texas, on an earth as it is in heaven. Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Be blessed. Love you guys. We'll see you next Sunday, if not sooner.